and welcome to Tape Ops Discussion, where we call our friends and music community notables to chat about their favorite records. Enjoy. Hello. Hey, man. Good morning. All right. Good morning. <laughs> What's happening? You know, it's funny. After I uh, delayed our call so I could move that car, someone else moved their car right into the spot where I was going to put my car. So, <laughs> And you know what's funny now? I just looked out my window and they now have moved the car. <laughs> but there's actually now there's still not space for my car this, see this is some stuff is like a new yorker it's hard for my head to get around i've been here a couple years in california and i still can't get around this like just parking and cars and stuff it's making me crazy yeah Welcome to Discussion. I'm Jeff Stanfield. And this week we have Emsh from Subatomic Sound System discussing Lee Scratch Perry's Super Ape. Cool, man. Well, you uh, sent me uh, a Super Ape, you know, Lee Scratch Perry and the Upsetters, really a Lee Scratch Perry record, but um, came out yeah. under the moniker with, you know, the Upsetters, which was his house band. This is a record that you and I have talked about so much, along with other Lee Perry records, yeah. because of our interview, and you and I hung out with Lee, and you guys came over to my studio, and like, yeah. you and I have uh, stayed in touch, and, and uh, you've shared a, a ton of, of knowledge with me on on uh on dub and reggae music and records and so you know when when i asked you to participate in discussion you sending super ape was pretty appropriate this is one of my this is one of my all-time favorite records and that is no secret to anyone that reads tape op or knows me right why did you choose this one and and um you know what's your relationship with this record well as you said, you and I have talked about it a lot. We've done the interview uh, with Lee, and uh, you know, on one hand, I almost thought maybe it was redundant, but on the other hand, I really, when I started thinking about albums that were important to me that I loved, I realized that literally no album has changed my life like this one album. I mean, I, you know, started working with Lee. I went on tour. I, you know, convinced him to do the 40th anniversary of the tour. Uh, sorry, 40th anniversary tour for the album, playing all the music again after so many years and in the process dug so deep into it that uh, I've never analyzed any music as much as I have with this one. Um, but something about all that actually made me appreciate it more. And when you uh, mentioned this new podcast, I thought, you know, the things that we've talked about before in many ways had to do with the technical aspects or with Lee but not really about just the process of listening to the album. And I know it's really easy for musicians and, you know, especially, uh, you know, producers and engineers to get into like the technical side of things and in a way get, uh, you know, uh, uh, a division or separate from the actual feeling you get from the album. And for me, the whole reason I got so involved with Lee and with this album and 
like I said, we did the tour and eventually remade the whole album, the whole Super 8 Returns the Conquer album, which was like a crazy process to take an album you love and revisit it, but not recreate it. All those things uh, have to go back to the seed, which is just the feeling I got from the original album. And that being said, this album from just the first the first sound you hear out of it, it's these these drum hits. It's like a portal opening up to another universe. albums that I've loved and I have influenced me but uh, I mean this one it's just it, it captures something that's really special about an album you love and I think anyone who loves an album has this feeling that it takes you on a on a journey and this one the very first drum hits it's like a little whistle and then it's just like uh, rock is rolling back and revealing like a, an ancient world and the sunlight is pouring in and it's like the smoky, misty jungle and you can see, uh, you know, uh, pterodactyls uh, soaring in the sky and, you know, off in the woods somewhere, you know, there's this giant King Kong sort of gorilla. It's just, you know, even the, the album art was done in a way that is kind of like comic uh it's a painting but sort of this comical uh rendition of what looks like a king kong or you know at the time i know when it came out 1976 the whole idea of you know bigfoot and things like that was very popular and so uh yeah i just feel like the album transports you right from the initial notes it's like opening the gate and I thought about how when we recreated the album, that was like a big thing for me was what are the initial notes, like our recreation of it, what's that going to sound like? And the very first song, um, it's Zion, it's called Zion's Blood. Um, I was like painstaking about getting that feeling. I was like, man, you know, when people hear that, it's got to be from those very first notes. It's got to be opening that door um, because that's what the whole album is about, this journey. Besides that, like there are a few things about this album that are really unique. Um, you know, there's a combination. Uh, of course, Lee Perry's known uh, for producing Bob Marley, but he's also known as one of the pioneers of dub music. And dub is primarily instrumental. Lee, before <clears throat> he specifically did dub, did a lot of instrumental music, kind of like you know reggae organ jams and stuff like that, and from the late '60s into the early '70s, and is um, you know technically the first dub album ever. Um, Blackboard Jungle was almost entirely instrumental. But this one strikes a really interesting balance. And this got me thinking, knowing that we we're going to talk about this, how unusual it is to listen to music that is both instrumental, like a balance of instrumental and vocal. And not song by song, but literally within a song. 
And, um, you know, so often it's like you're going to listen to something like, uh, you know, you listen to jazz, you listen to, oh, vocal jazz or instrumental jazz. Or, you know, in, in most popular music these days, it's very much centered on the vocal. The music is just a backdrop or, you know, uh, painting the, the sort of uh, land, emotional landscape around the vocals. And this album is uh, really like, to me, the music is taking you on the journey and the vocals are there almost in a um, kind of like ceremonial way. On a lot of the songs, they're not full uh, organized like, you know, A, B, A, C, B sort of vocal structures. They're almost like chants. So right from that opening track, Zion's Blood, he's talking about like the lyrics. It's uh, just repeating over and over with these harmonized vocals. Zion's blood is flowing through my veins. African blood is flowing through my veins. And around that is swirling, you know, the different sounds of the music. Um, and it's actually, it's worth noting too, a lot of these tracks he used as the, the music for this album were used for other songs. And um, one of the other things that's interesting to me about this album is because these had been used and sitting around on tapes, in many ways they were worn. So there's a whole issue of like deterioration of the recording from kind of like a a technical side, like what happens when, you know, a tape has been played so many times, a lot of the high end wears off. And so, for example, on a, a song like Zion's Blood, um, there's another version of it with um, Devin Iron singing from years before where you actually hear a really prominent hi-hat. But in this version, so much of that and the horn section is worn away that they're almost like ghostly in the back. And they've added a, a shaker on the top to keep time to like, you know, kind of compensate for the the, the tape wearing out. But uh, at the same time, it creates these layers. You know, it's um, I'm trying to think of another artistic analogy, but, you know, you think about someone like Van Gogh painting with a really thick paint and layering things on top of one another. It's almost like that sort of thing going on here, sort of orchestration that's really unusual. Anybody that's sort of gone deep on uh, dub music, and especially Lee Perry's music, will notice, and this this rings true even for your uh, Super Ape Returns to Conquer record, you know, the, the music is repurposed, the, the song titles are different, you know, a tune like Croaking Lizard on Super Ape shows up as Disco Devil. Yeah, the original was Max Romeo, Chase the Devil, which arguably besides uh, the Bob Marley productions that Lee Perry did is maybe his most well-known tune, you know, definitely uh, tons of people don't even know reggae have heard that tune. And so many other songs from, you know, hip hop tracks like Jay-Z and Kanye's um, song that uh, samples that whole Chase the Devil chorus. I think it was on the Black Album or something like that to like, uh, you know, the Electronica guys, uh, Prodigy from the UK. Um, so many people have sampled that hook that it's one of those songs that's like, yeah, uh, transported through time and interestingly here he takes that vocal off entirely and uh, you know just uses the instrumental so to be honest for years I was listening to this album without even realizing that was the same music which I think is in a way testament to how much he's like transformed something to be um, you know its own uh, its own work of art Rockers Rockers ain't no rockers. Musical this, real carpers, eh? 
And, uh, you know, so often, like, you know, music law considers a vocal and music, you know, tied together. You know, like, I, I think James Brown gets all the money for, or, you know, not anymore because he's dead, but his estate gets the money for any sampling of the funky drummer beat, even though it's Clyde Stubblefield who played it. It never had, like, the, the writing credit for it, you know. But even if you sample a part of the music with no vocal, you know, it's all tied to the, the writers. And Jamaica has this odd um, tradition of just having no copyright law and constantly recycling music. Even like, you know, someone writes a song back in the 70s that was popular and someone else would just redo it, you know, even like, you know, Lee's redone some like Burning Spear songs and stuff like that to kind of create uh, other classics of his own. And I don't, you know, it's like, a, it's a crazy process, but it's a, uh, it's a sort of creativity that says a lot about, um, what's possible when you take away some of the restrictions, you know, certainly if you look at like hip hop and the whole history of sampling there created like a, a really amazing, I mean, arguably like the stop of sampling sort of crippled a really important aspect of hip hop uh, production, you know, the whole era of sampling and like Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique and stuff like that, where they sampled like a thousand records that you could you know, never clear anymore. But yeah, that that's going on here. There's there's those couple songs, but uh, that are you know famous rhythms like uh, "War in a Babylon" appears here as "Black Vest" and has like this new horn melody on it, which is another super popular um, Max Romeo song. But to be honest, the funny thing is those really big songs aren't even, to me, the standouts on the album. Like that, the very first song, Zion's Blood, is like particularly amazing in that sense of, like I said, having, um, to me, it's the song that like opens the gate on this world, you know, taking you into like what's depicted on the album art into this, you know, world of the misty jungle where the super ape sort of King Kong creature lives you know, the lyrics talking about Zion's blood in Africa, like as a kid when I was first hearing that, I was like, wow, you know, what? what is this? What is this, you know, narrative about? And, you know, if you're a believer in the the the, the science that all humanity started in, in Africa, like, to me, that sort of resonates, that song resonates as like, you know, African blood is flowing in, in all our veins. So this sort of like chanting, meditative, almost like ceremonial religious songs, like taking you back to the uh, inception of humanity and kind of like the wilderness. Uh, and so I love that. It's got a really visceral feeling, visceral sort of meditative, transportive feeling, which um, kind of is the tone for the whole album, sort of in different like balances of dark and light. And, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious your take on this too. Like this is my experience with the album. When I listen to this record, I mean, it is it, in so many ways, it's like going to church because these are just like what you just said, you know, these are, uh, and, and reggae music in, in general, you know, it, these are religious songs. These are not just, uh, 
songs that have been co-opted by Western culture uh, so that they could go get baked and like... Um, <laughs> right. And that's the stereotype, certainly. Of s- this is one of these records for me that is just absolutely, like you said, the, from those opening notes and the rolling back of the stone and this like mythical and mystical stage setting... It's just so unbelievable. And the whole record is like this. And in a way that like many of his other records are not, this is a body of work. It is so concept album. really. Yeah. And it's murky and smoky and it's the perfect summer record. And it's, this just has such a um, nice balance as well of like super deep, heavy grooves, mystical, crazy, weird horns. But it's also got these incredible melodies that are so catchy where, like, it's one of my kids' favorite records. Yeah, yeah, that's wild how it can cross generations. I thought that was really interesting you are telling me about that. They know every lyric on this record. <laughs> they know, and they know it not only, uh, you know, they know this record, but they also know your version of this record with Lee. But, you know, this original record, for all its technical flaws and its murkiness and the warbliness, every single time I put it on, it transports me. Well, it's funny you say that because I think, um, you know, this is something I thought about a lot in uh, revisiting the album. You know, one of the things about our version, Super 8 Returns to Conquer, is that it was supposed to be based on a live performance of the music, which primarily was changing the energy from the, the, the whole feel of the original album to me as a, as a meditation. And like you said, sort of a summer day, you're laid back in the cut. It's taking you on this journey of these deep grooves. But that isn't really something you, you want in a, in a live performance with a, an audience that's sort of like, you know... Uh, you know, especially these days, you know, people have the energy to get out. So we had to sort of like re-energize, like take the same compositions and take, take them to a different energetic spot. And my idea in, in doing that was like not to correct the flaws of the original album because the flaws are actually part of what makes it magical. You know, and that's what I th- uh, was kind of getting at when saying, um, you know, a lot of these recordings he had used before and years before and had played them, you know, I don't know, maybe not a hundred times, but many times over the tape machine to the point where it had worn off frequencies. And um, that kind of creates a feeling that's that's unique to that album, separate from the compositions. You know, there's like, there are a couple amazing aspects. Like the 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 more I listen to the album and as time goes by and still find it, it's got a great effect on me is that, um, you know, there are the, the limitations and the way Scratch uses the, the deterioration of the tape, the limitations of his equipment. And in fact, you know, almost like you could say even like the damage to them, he, he uses that to create the sound and uh, the whole vibe of it.
The other thing that's interesting is, like you said, it's like a spiritual thing. And I can say from working with Scratch, he told me that that was the thing that he instilled in Bob Marley. And when you think about it, it's uh, you're right. It is something that's really missing from most music. And Scratch is always talking to us about how, you know, that's the that's the key. If, If there's no spirit in the music and like you said, almost like a religious thing these days, like people don't even think of music as like a part of religion but throughout our history that's mostly what it's been and so yeah this album like to say it's a religious experience maybe some people feel like oh that's you know going over the top but but it is it is sort of that like the format of the songs when you go through like a a couple of my other favorite songs on the album besides zion's blood are um dread lion and super ape um and i would say curly dub all of which have this balance of Vocals is sort of a chant and not like a full typical pop song structure and uh, also like heavy orchestration of other other melodies through, um, you know, a variety of sounds. You know, Dread Lion just sounds like literally it's like melting the entire time. You know, it's just this super, (laughs) super slow, murky, warbly jam. You know, I could play this record over and over and over and over and even a song over and over and over and over and have it be kind of fresh every single time and it just puts me in a space in the same way like you know an ambient record would but it also is it allows for space for you to think and to yes um, yes process and meditate so you know if on that level it's it's got a lot of functions for me as a piece of music and a work of art and a statement um and you know having spent some time with with lee i it's even becomes more obvious where it came from and who it came through. Yeah. And his, you know, he seems to have just such a great improvisational spirit to him and a very reactive to environment and impulse, you know, in a way that's very just pure and childlike. Mm. Yeah. Like you said, knowing Lee gives you a lot of insight into why it is the way it is. He is not worried about things being imperfect like he's meticulous in certain ways but he's totally fine with mistakes in his mind it's like oh it's everything is the way it was meant to be and uh that also has proven to be very inspirational for me with this album is um you know the idea that you know beyond the actual product and uh the final product and just the feeling i get from it is like knowing the story of how he created it, how his whole creativity is, how it was created in basically a home studio in his backyard with very simple equipment like that in itself is all also inspiring, you know, and I think when I say it's changed my life, I say there are certainly aspects of that that gave me the confidence to take on, um, 
you know, trying to make music that would stand the test of time with simple tools. The idea that you didn't need to have, you know, a big, but I mean, this is more commonplace today, especially with young kids coming up. Like, of course, they're going to make all their music on their own on a laptop. But, you know, 20 years ago, it still seemed like, oh, you needed a record deal. If you were going to create like some masterpiece of an album, you needed all this high tech equipment and uh, you know, the big budget studio and things that were unattainable for an individual. And the idea that in 1976, with just a few basic pieces of equipment, you know, I think it was a four track um, uh, tape machine, uh, maybe a 16 track or 12 track board, um, a spring reverb, the Grampian he had, which I know a lot of guitar players like Pete Townsend used for their, you know, guitar amp. And he had the, um, uh, the Roland Space Echo and a, a Mutron biphase, and maybe that was about it. He had a flanger at some point, which he maybe used on this. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but literally, like you could count the pieces of equipment he had on, you know, your two hands, and created something that, you know, takes you on this journey and stands the test of time. And I think that's also an aspect of this album that, when I go back and listen to it, it. Um, you know, it takes me on a meditation. It gives me space to think, but also it's like, uh, as a producer or engineer, it gives me like a sense of confidence. It's a reminder of what's possible. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Discussion is created by Tape Op, the creative music recording magazine. Free subscriptions are available at tapeop.com along with our regular podcast and online content.